watchers in the fourth dimension. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I'm no regressive, I'm a naval officer. This episode, we're off into the far future as we land on the Ark in space. But as usual, we'll kick off the podcast episode with a quick look at the mail, which is with Julie this time. Over to you, Julie. We're going to start with Planet of Spiders. Our friend Dave Anderson says, Overlong and full of the greatest hits. But it's the first story I remember watching on TV. I caught the edited edition at Christmas in 1973, and it blew my tiny mind. Aww. Whilst the editing is choppy at times, the redacted version hangs together much better. No overlong recaps, just a solid (laughs) 90 minutes. That might be better. Being my first story, I love the story in either format. It's the rosy glow of the Pertwee era and with all its good and bad points on display, but played with a genuine affection. Can't rate it too biased. That never stopped Anthony, but who am I to judge? <laughs> Guilty. I think showing videotapes of Planet of the Spires to children is like giving them the tape from the ring. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very true. Our friend Adam Wright said, in retrospect, I will continue to view this as a closure for Mike Yates' mental health storyline. <laughs> it is a garbled free-for-all of Pertwee closure, but all standout elements are already addressed. Wait, so is he saying that the chasing didn't happen? That's just what Yates imagined? <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Oh, it's getting deep. I like it. And our friend Jim Casey said, it occurred to me just while listening that even though the story was obviously changed a lot from its initial conception, can you imagine the master being here instead? I sort of can. Alliances with overgrown spider stowaways on a colony seems just the sort of thing he'd do. Hell, maybe the Great One captures his TARDIS somehow and makes a bargain with him to retrieve the crystal from Earth. Would explain why the guys at the monastery are so willing to go along, too. They're all fallen under his will. I kind of like that piece of it, at least. Yes, I miss Elgato. It did get redundant during Season 8, with him always teaming up with some new menace, but this season, one particularly feels his absence. Yeah. I agree completely, yeah. I can see some of that. Maybe, Maybe a little differences here and there, but... It'd be fun. On to our season 11 retrospective. David Campbell on what Sarah was writing about during season 11. I just revisited Ghosts of In Space for the first time since the 90s. And you do get to find out a bit of Sarah's investigative journalism career during season 11. Her editor, Clorinda, has just rejected her Dalek piece. Worse, she says that Clorinda has spiked everything I've put since I met the doctor. So Sarah has decided to give up and instead write a very trashy sounding novel full of sex and international crime lords. <laughs> so there it is, everyone. Appearing in classic Doctor Who was not only unlucky for the acting careers of the companions, it was bad for the fictional working lives of the characters they played as well. <laughs> uh. Also, if someone hasn't written a fan fiction of what that novel is, it should be done and I want to read it. I would read that too. Yeah, let's be honest. And now our friend Nathan Laws. I'm surprised to see the chase sequence from Planet of the Spiders get slagged off so much in a group of 75% Americans. Generally, when I hear or read Bricks complaining about it, it's because it's too American. I grew up with James Bond films in the A-Team, so it's never phased me in any way. Okay, let me stop you there. James Bond is not American. I'm going to put that back on the Brits there. 
I will also say an A-team episode was roughly 26 minutes. The chase scene was 12 minutes. There's no A-team episode where it was a 12-minute chase scene. Even they had sense to cut that down. But I, I would be all in for an A-team Doctor Who crossover. <laughs> I yes. would. Yes. And I think Pertwee is the only doctor that would work for that. So, yes. Absolutely. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, and he continues. So what if it's self-indulgent? Pertwee deserves it. Plus, any outing for the Whomobile is a good thing. And I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> I was going to say, hard disagree. The Whomobile is another over-the-top indulgence and will never be better than Bessie. And I'd like to add, Pertwee may deserve it. We don't deserve it, okay? <laughs> Come on. And again, he continues. I personally think Sarah Jane is the best with the third Doctor, where she has so much more agency and clearly has a life independent of the Doctor. You get the feeling that she's been doing stuff between the monster of Peladon and Planet of Spiders and had a life and career of her own rather than just being the doctor's assistant. I can't really comment here as I don't know what she's like with Tom Baker yet. So I'm going to wait until I talk about that more. If we're just talking about the episode that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, he's right on that one. She does not have a lot of agency in this. Hmm. We'll come back around and judge her entire run with both doctors when she leaves the show mm -hmm. now we're going to move on to our friend paul arthur aka doctor who 60s 70s and 80s a fantastic roundup of season 11 love the answers to my whomobile question if i recall i talked mm. about the little red van i'm predicting harry sullivan will boot julie's new classic who crush <laughs> I'm just gonna say we shall see. All right, next one from Peter Kane. Great episode. Thank you to all the watchers for your amazing answer to my Dalek question. Aw, thank you You're so welcome, much. You're welcome, Peter. It was a good question. Before we go too far, in reference to our friend Paul, he may have accidentally predicted one of our <laughs> Halloween horror episode picks <laughs> in Ooh. one of his Instagram posts. Maybe. We will see. Dun, dun, dun. Wah, ah, ah. Ah, uh, that's a better one. <laughs> Last but not least, Joe Zer. As someone who has been a fan of the Hooniverse since I happened upon it in 1982, hearing your discussion about the stories reminds me of sharing similar times with friends back in my early days of viewership, going on about things we enjoyed or disliked or complete rubbish, <laughs> yet sharing in our love for the weird and wacky ride we were on. I, I know how that one goes. Thank y'all for helping me reminisce. As things turn towards Tom Baker's run for y'all, I wonder if Julie will be three for three with Harry Sullivan. Wow. Reputation, Julie. <laughs> Reputation. <laughs> okay, okay, everyone. I get it. I tend to have crushes on these shows. However, we're just going to have to wait and see about Harry Sullivan right now, right out the gate. I'm not so sure. And he just quietly ends this with, Jelly babies and sonic screwdrivers all around. Yay. Let's all have jelly babies. <laughs> and that's the mail. Awesome. Thank you so much, Julie. As usual, we do love hearing all of your feedback, comments, questions, thoughts, etc. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many as possible. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watchers4D or via email at Watchers4D at gmail.com. We would dearly love to hear from you, so please do send us a note. Now, moving on to our main event, we start with a look behind the scenes on the Ark in Space. 
This serial was the first one recorded as part of the show's 12th production block, and marks the first official contribution of Philip Hinchcliffe as producer. He comes to the show having previous experiences as script editor, working on You're Only Young Twice, Alexander the Greatest, The Jensen Code, and The Kids from 47A. We'll have him around for about three seasons, and then when, once he leaves, his career will involve roles as both producer and executive producer on shows such as Target, Screen 2, Rebus and Taggart. He has a pretty good reputation amongst Doctor Who fans, so I'm very curious to see what this group makes of his tenure on the show. With our new production team fully on board, they could start working on plans for the season in earnest. Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes found that the keystone of their plans would be the first storyline that had been submitted, initially entitled Space Station, which was to be written by a gentleman called Christopher Langley. Holmes and Hinchcliffe decided that they could gain further budget efficiencies by having two serials set in the same location, and the sets for Space Station would later be reused for Jerry Davis's Revenge of the Cybermen. However, by the end of May 1974, it was becoming increasingly apparent that Langley's contributions were not going to work out, and a replacement would have to be found. Since they had now structured much of the season around the titular space station, these requirements had to carry over to whomever would take over that story slot. Holmes turned to John Lucarotti, who had been recommended by his predecessor Terence Dix. Dix had worked with Lucarotti on that oh-so-famous show, Moonbase 3. <laughs> But Lucarotti's involvement with Doctor Who goes back far longer than this. He had written both Marco Polo and the Aztecs for season one, along with The Ooh. Massacre for season three. His scripts for what would become The Ark in Space were commissioned in early June 1974. Lucarotti's storyline involved an enormous space arc carrying cryogenically frozen humans, which would be invaded by an alien species called the Delk. The Delk were a race of fungi grown from spores floating in space. The idea was that the primary Delk would take the form of floating heads, while a lower class of servitors would be headless bodies. The species would be impervious to most forms of harm as any impact would just result in the release of more spores growing more Delk. But the Doctor would eventually discover that they were susceptible to electrocution, and after defeating them, Lucarotti had it planned that the Doctor would knock the primary Delk into space using a golf club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of bonkers that would have been great but it sounds really expensive yeah and I, I just dread the cso work of floating heads yes interestingly lucarotti was unaware that the show had stopped using individual episode titles back in 1966 in season three and gave each of his scripts their own episode title they were buttercups <laughs> puffball camellias and golf ball <laughs> I, I get it. Anyway, issues arose during scripting as Lucarotti was writing from a houseboat in Corsica and the situation was really hampered due to a postal dispute which caused contact between Lucarotti and Holmes to be extremely sporadic. When Holmes received copies of Lucarotti's scripts in July 1974, he considered them to be unsuitable as they had evolved into a narrative that Holmes thought was too sophisticated for the show to be able to realise effectively on screen. With time running out for the completion of the scripts, it was decided that Holmes would complete a total rewrite himself. Some basic elements were kept, but what would eventually make it to screen was vastly different from Lucarotti's original ideas. While he was paid in full for his contributions, he would not receive an on-screen credit, with Holmes being the name that is credited as the author of this story. 
As a further cost-cutting measure, Holmes and Hinchcliffe decided to pair production of the Ark in Space with the next story, The Sontaran Experiment, basically filming them as if they were a six-parter. One would be made entirely in the studio, and the other entirely on location. They would share much of the same crew, including the director Rodney Bennett. Bennett would also go on to direct season 14's The Mask of Mandragora, and is also known for directing episodes of Zed Cars, The Legend of King Arthur, and Tales of the Unexpected. Bennett and Holmes had some very different creative ideas during the making of The Ark in Space. Bennett actually really disliked Holmes' original ending, which was scripted as Noah leading the Wirren out into deep space. Bennett rewrote the ending. He has Noah's last vestiges of humanity shining through, causing him to destroy the Wirren instead. Additionally, Holmes had originally intended the character of Vira to be a black woman, likely Haitian, but instead Bennett decided to cast a white woman, Wendy Williams. Speaking of changes to the finished product, one scene was notably cut by Philip Hinchcliffe himself. While Hinchcliffe had intentions of taking the show in a mature direction, he was aware that he needed to do so cautiously given the show's younger audience. After consultation with BBC head of serials Bill Slater, he decided to cut a scene from part three in which Noah described to Vira the feeling of ecstasy and torment of transforming into a Wirren, which would culminate in him begging her to kill him, although she would be unable to bring herself to do so. Both Hinchcliffe and Slater felt that this scene would be far too unsettling to children, and it was apparently filmed, but the film material has never actually surfaced. I, I would quite like to see that one day. Me too. On the creative team, Bennett was joined by returning composer Dudley Simpson, while George Galassio continues his run as production unit manager. Also making contributions on the creative side to both stories are returning costumer Barbara Kidd, who we last saw working on The Monster of Peladon, and first-time contributor Roger Murray-Leach as designer, and he will go on to work on a total of seven Doctor Who serials, and is also known for his work on Dixon of Doc Green, Blake Seven, and A Fish Called Wanda. The final product was broadcast between the 25th of January and the 15th of February 1975. Part 2 would notably draw in an audience of 13.6 million viewers, placing it in fifth place on the UK's weekly viewing charts, the highest chart position that the show has achieved to date, which is awesome. That brings us to the end of our behind the scenes segment, and with that, we're on to our short summary, which I believe is with Riley this episode. Over to you, Riley. Even on a spaceship in the distant future, bugs want in. And the Orchid Man, I mean the Doctor, will keep them out. With help from Sarah Jane and Harry. How does he do that? With an alien autopsy, a mind meld, electricity, and the lingering humanity of Noah. Actually, it really was just Noah. Bad buggies go boom boom. The end. <laughs> Nice. Oh, man. All right. Let's talk about this one. Part one. Hey, straight off the bat, synth is back, but it ain't no Silurian synth. It's good synth. I almost was concerned because the second that I heard it, I was like, uh-oh, debtors, what are you doing to me? And then it turned out that that was the majority of synth. And then we get into some more woodwinds and percussion when we get into the ship. And I was like, okay. That synth actually works. I agree with Riley on that. Yeah. The other thing I really love right at the beginning, and it's kind of a classic trope, but the monster eye view that we get mm. a reprise later once the Doctor starts looking at the Wirren's memories. I think that's really cool and works pretty well. That's two fourth Doctor stories in a row that have used that. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Risking becoming a trope there, but yeah. <laughs> 
All right, I have a question. We get onto the ship and we have the doctor yelling at Harry because why not? Let's just traumatize him for a while. Because he's touching things that he shouldn't be. I'm wondering if that's going to become a trope as well. Yeah. (laughs) Why does Sarah Jane have an oil lamp instead of a torch? It just seemed very odd to me. I'm thinking it's the same one from Death to the Daleks. There was one in Death to the Daleks? Yeah, when the torch goes out, the Doctor pulls out an oil lamp. So I'm assuming that's just been kind of hanging around in the console room since Death to the Daleks. But it still takes more effort to light an oil lamp than it does to pick up a torch and turn it on. Yes. I was just sitting there like, oil lamp? That's real weird. Okay. I don't know why, because we led straight into this from the previous episode. I have, excuse me, from the previous serial. It didn't strike me as much then because I guess it looks so out of place now and also on top of the fact that he just got accused for bumbling around. But Harry dressed in that navy blue double-breasted suit with the ascot and with him fumbling, does that just not really make him look like an upper-class twit? He is. <laughs> yes, he is. That's 100% what Harry is. <laughs> and I'm here for it. <laughs> And then, of course, we arrive, everything's dark, we don't know what's going on. And then, I don't know if it's the show feeding in from Scooby-Doo or vice versa, we have the old separate the gang trick where, hey, come here, look at this. Oh, don't bother me right now, I'm looking at this. And then, of course, the sliding door opens and the sliding door closes and Sarah Jane is trapped. But once again, she was trapped because Harry was touching buttons. That he shouldn't be touching. (laughs) That he shouldn't be touching, that's important. Damn it, Harry. I found I enjoy his character more if I imagine him as being played by Hugh Laurie. (laughs) (laughs) Like a Black Adder type Hugh Laurie. And then it just perfectly fits. I understand that this is the get to know Harry serial, but dear God, it didn't need to be at the expense of Sarah Jane. Yeah. It's really bad. I think she's unconscious for the first one and a half episodes, at least. Basically, yeah. Something like that. Uh. She had a lovely funeral, though. (laughs) And then she screams a lot, which is not very Sarah Jane. That upset me as well. Maybe it was a lack of oxygen. That's my (laughs) justification. We know it's because it's a new writing team. I did notice that there wasn't any music intensifying or beeping intensifying or anything like that, but we did get oxygen hissing. (laughs) Okay. So I, I did enjoy that one. Also, a drop of brandy will fix everything. Just like a cold compress on twisted ankles and a cup Mm. of tea will fix anything. Those are the British fixes. This is a bit of a (laughs) sideline, but I actually saw the cold compress on an ankle in another thing entirely. Was it British? No, it's in the 1990s television version of Stephen King's It. Oh, (laughs) What? As a British person, I don't know about the effectiveness of a cold compress, but I will fight for the slug of brandy (laughs) and the cup of tea as a fix-all thing. Let's not go criticizing my culture here. I'm taking offense. This is flat-out racism, and I'm not standing for it, Julie. Wait, 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 but I said those are British fixes, and you just said that you stand by them, so therefore it is a British fix. Way to lean into the stereotype, (laughs) Annie. Overall, I really love this first episode. It's something we haven't had in a really long time Mm -hmm. of just the Doctor and his companions exploring a space station. And it's basically just them. You don't meet another character until part two. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I liked the atmosphere of everything. I like that they fight with a, not a robot, but kind of a robot. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the defense mechanism. I really enjoyed that. I did have a question about it, though. And it's probably just since we live in the modern era where most things are made out of synthetic materials. I was just curious about his hat. 
because his hat gets shot because it's organic, but the shoes, uh, certain th- the shoes weren't organic or something like that. And I was like, interesting. Harry wears cheap <laughs> shoes. They're made yeah. of Naga hide. <laughs> But hey, you know, it works and it's some wonderful tension. And in that scene, I love how we get a use of the sonic screwdriver to unscrew something. That's weird. (laughs) Yes. That's just so odd. (laughs) After it's been used to fix some wires. I think my favorite part is when the doctor and Harry are underneath that desk and then they're scooting around on the floor. (laughs) Like in a semicircle. Oh, oh, that was beautiful. That was glorious. Yeah. And it does a good job because it's really the first episode feels like a bottle episode in a way in that it, you're right. It's an opportunity to show how the doctor interacts with Harry in a crisis because we didn't have that in Robot. They try to get Sarah Jane, but then she is transported by the magical couch, I guess, <laughs> or magical chaise. That transports her away. We're also getting to know the environment mm-hmm. and that a lot of things aren't really obvious, like the, the magical transporting Shea Lounge. We also <laughs> get a bit more of an insight into our new doctor and the way he almost compliments Harry, but does it in the form of an insult mm-hmm. where he mm-hmm. says he's improving, but you mustn't take any credit. It's all because of my influence, <laughs> <laughs> uh. which is probably true. But wow, come on. <laughs> Just tonally, this is so different from anything we had in the Pertwee era. Oh, Or any other era, for that matter. It's very different. And it's much, much better than the previous episode. I know everyone either was shocked or not shocked. I'm not sure which way they would go about me not claiming him as being, like, the doctor Mm. yet. Because I had a lot of issues with the last serial because I thought it was too slapstick comedy for me to enjoy it. Especially with, with the doctor. And I thought he was rather smug for the entire thing. I enjoyed him so much more in this one. He didn't have that smug attitude. He would sometimes still insult people, but he seemed a lot more personable and not like in your face. Oh, I'm better than all of you. He also has a smile that can either mean, oh, I'm having so much fun or I'm about to stab everyone in the room. That's just the way it comes across. (laughs) (laughs) Julie, I'm looking forward to once again asking you the question (laughs) at the end of this episode Mm -hmm. and seeing if we get a different answer. Despite it just being a three-hander, there's quite a lot going on here. There's a huge mystery through most of this episode. It feels like it's a dual mystery. What is this place? Why have they ended up here? And then additionally, what's gone wrong? Because something clearly has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sets such a wonderful tone. It really does. The mood of this entire serial is so well set. The so creepy. I don't know if anyone noticed this, but in the hallway shots. One, it's very clever to add that curve to it. Provides a classic mm-hmm. look. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it, this was intentional, but if you listen, their voices sound different in the hallway. Like it's bouncing off metal, like in a tube. Like yeah. they're talking in a metal cylinder. And it's fantastic, those little details. Speaking of tone and mood and asking questions and a mystery, the shot after the doctor says, what has happened to the human species, Harry? The shot right after that is absolutely dynamite. Creepy music plays. A door slowly slides open. The camera is now quite a distance away from the principals. And then they slowly turn to face the camera. But what's so disturbing about that is that with the mood, we know something's wrong. We know there's danger. They're looking at us as if they're looking at something behind us. And that creeps you out. You feel like there is something behind you because they are seeing something behind you and you know something's wrong. It's just the unease and the tension is so good in that shot. Overall, what's another feature of this being directed so well? 
is traditionally, you know, you think of something with a lot of tension and you want to have lower lighting. Mm -hmm. Once the power is restored, everything is very bright. Everything is very, very white in color, all the surfaces. And yet there's still this underlying tension. This feels very unusual and it's able to carry that despite being so brightly lit. I think what helps that is that it's all white. Yes. If it was a lot of colors, mm, yeah. then I think that it would be too bright and happy. But if it's everything stark white, it's kind of like that hospital feel mm. of everything is just sterile. It's like an Apple store in space. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But Julie, to your point, this is a sterile area. Keep out. Yes. Because you mentioned it, Riley, mm -hmm. are you nominating the director of this for our awards? I would. Absolutely. I would also, for that scene as well, would potentially nominate music for it because there's amazing bass clarinet going on during that entire sequence when they're walking down the hall and everything. Oh, it was so beautiful. Mm. Now, one thing that was hilarious was the fact that Harry carried his shoes from minute marker 1457 <laughs> to 2025. <laughs> hey, he's dedicated. Okay, we'll go with dedicated. Carrying around destroyed shoes. I think he's probably a little traumatized in this because this is his first <laughs> trip in the TARDIS. And he's like, my shoes, my shoes. Uh -huh. Let's talk about the cryogenic chamber because I think that set looks gorgeous. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. Very reminiscent of a Cyberman set. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tomb of the Cyberman. It's that double-decker look. This time, instead of plastic wrap, we get styrofoam. <laughs> when you think about it, based off the premise of the story, that set had to look impressive for it to, for this story to sell because it's supposed to be, this is it. This is humanity. This is what's left. Yeah. You don't quite no, and they film it quite cleverly so that you don't know how many different rooms there are of this mm -hmm. cryogenic chamber mm -hmm. or how far up they go. Mm -hmm. Or how many different, yeah, how many different rooms and all that. I like how they had yeah. some letter and number combination, I think, for like labeling everything as well. That was that was cool. The doctor sells it. That Homo sapiens speech is mm. one of the classic speeches of Doctor Who. And it's for a reason that it's considered mm -hmm. classic. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. We find Sarah Jane after she had done the disappearance act and everything. And then we see the giant bug as the cliffhanger. Yep, mm -hmm. Harry opens yeah. the cupboard and it falls out and comes towards him. I actually think the cliffhanger would have been better off of, of them finding Sarah Jane and Sarah Jane being the cliffhanger. I can see that. The giant bug wasn't much of a cliffhanger, especially because when you come to the next episode, it's just, oh, it's dead. I love where the story goes, but I just was not super thrilled by just a ah, giant bug. I don't know. I think at the time, to end with this shot of this bug coming towards Harry, it ends on that. And you're left thinking for an entire week what's going to happen to him. Is he being attacked? You don't know. We get instant gratification in that we get to move straight on to part two. And here's part two. And here's part yeah. two. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, Julie, I don't think that the dead we're in looks that great once you actually see it. To well, be fair, the live we're in don't look yeah. that great once you <laughs> see them. That's true. And that is where you can lay a very good criticism on this serial is that, yeah, the sets look great. Special effects, yeah, that's tough. I like the slugs. And you can mm -hmm. just tell that as a person in a sleeping bag, just crawling around <laughs> the floor. I think that's wonderful. I only have an issue with the bug. I have to agree. 
I really like this cereal. I think it's a classic for a reason, but that is the one mm-hmm. element that I feel has let me down. Because I think the script, you could reshoot it today and it would be fine. Yeah, oh yeah. But the one element I don't like is the bug. I can even overlook the wobbly space station, but mm-hmm. the bug itself is like, oh, you're letting me down. Well, I mean, it's also even the the shots, like particularly the, the gunfight in the hallway, the effects of the gun firing, very, very poor. I mean, I know they're doing their best, but that is the only thing where I will criticize the serial on. I think everything else is absolutely stellar. But man, if they could have just, I don't know, tightened that up somehow, made it better... Uh, I guess they were limited. It's also hard because, as Anthony mentioned, this is a very brightly lit set. Mm, yeah. So it's going to show. Yeah. Let's just blame the new production team. They're still <laughs> finding their feet. As we get into part two, we start having other humans waking up. The Doctor and co. have restored the power, the alarm clock is back on, and we very quickly meet Vira. One thing I love about Holmes's script is he has given this crew this kind of vocabulary that doesn't quite sound like what we would say, but we can understand it. It's mm. like the language mm-hmm. has evolved over time. She uses things like, she calls them dawn timers, and she refers to Noah as their prime unit. It's very clinical. I wish she would have been the prime unit. She is by the end. I think she's better suited from it from the get-go because she comes across as like, oh, we're better, more sophisticated, we're all this. Noah wakes up and he comes out swinging. Yes. He's a unit from the get-go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The doctor makes a point. At some point, someone else says, well, Vira doesn't seem very concerned by this. And he says, well, it's not her job, right? Noah's job is to be concerned about the mission. And there are these three unknown elements that are jeopardizing his mission. I kind of get why he comes out swinging. I think if he had been given more time before he was infected, he might have come round to the doctor and crow. I don't know. His views about eugenics make me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of a a Nazi vibe to these people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, just a bit there. The frustrating thing that I find about Noah is because we've talked about this in so many episodes is you always have that guy who immediately gets introduced to the doctor and he hates them. And he's like, this is the bad guy. Okay, I know this trope. This trope has been done before. Now, as the serial goes and continues... I start to enjoy Noah more as a character and I enjoy Vira more as a character. So this is an instance where when I was first introduced to them, I was like, not these kind of people again. And then once I get to part three, I'm like, okay, no, this is different than what we've seen before. Yeah. And that's a benefit right there. The pacing here is that we're not dealing with that issue over and over again over the course of six or eight episodes. We have that distrust at the beginning and then we either get over it or we move on to the next crisis and it's put in the back. And credit where credit's due, Noah's actor just acts the hell out of everything. He sells the bubble wrap. He He does. does. And that's impressive. bubble wrap monsters. On the other hand, Vera just has a terrible Jerry Blank haircut. (laughs) how advanced can you be come on look at that get a mirror Mm. to be fair i watched the making of on the blu-ray and i think she was pretty close to the end of her life when they made that making of and she still had the same haircut (laughs) wow Wow, that wasn't even forced on her that's sad dedication right there one of the things that we start hearing is harry calling women (laughs) old girl I thought it was just Sarah Jane who said that. Did you say that to Vira as well? No, he said it to Vira as well. Oh, goodness. Okay. I know everyone was anxiously waiting as to whether or not Harry would be my three for three. And as of right now, he is not. 
<laughs> to be fair, we have already called him an upper class twit. Having <laughs> friends who were quite upper class when I lived in England, I've been referred to as old boy by several of them. I know this isn't just a female thing. He would probably mm -hmm. call a male character old boy. That's still a problem for me. It doesn't matter if it's just for women or not. It's that I know he's upper class, but he does act like he's better than other people sometimes. And that's what I don't like. If you noticed, my two crushes before were Jamie, who is just a random Highlander dude, and Benton, who is always the subservient type person. So yeah, I don't think I'm into the rich guys. <laughs> it's fair. He's more of a Yates <laughs> than a Benton. But he is better than Yates. That's good. Yes. That's good. It's rather low bar. <laughs> You've never forgiven him for taking that food from Benton. <laughs> Absolutely not. All right. So moving on from my crushes, there's uh, someone named Dune. Yes. yes. Which was great. And he was dead. Yeah. We never meet Dune. He was, well, we kind of do. He's the body in the cryogenic chamber in the alien eye view right in the opening sequence of part one. And that's our entire exposure to Dune. Poor Dune. Poor Dune. Yeah. Let's talk about the obvious thing and Noah getting slimed and starting his transformation. This is when I started to like Noah. I love the conversation of someone being overtaken mm -hmm. by something else and having an internal battle than something that's like an external struggle. Yeah, I think I've told the three of you before. When I first got introduced to Doctor Who, my dad came home with three VHS tapes. The Mind Robber, <sighs> The Time Warrior, and this one. <laughs> At like six years old, body horror was the one thing that scared me the most. And this scared me shitless as like a <laughs> six-year-old. This was the one of the three that I could not watch. With the sliming, the serial goes full Cronenberg. It does. <laughs> and I'm all here for it. I kind of would love to see what Cronenberg would do with this, though. <laughs> the MA rated version. I kind of love what they do with the character of Noah, though. The infection clearly progresses very, very quickly, and he is incredibly hostile. Libri is horrified. He sees something else, so he gets this premonition of what Noah's going to become. And then Noah starts having, I guess, a breakdown. He claims to be Dune. He wants to shut down the revivication, but he doesn't. He really get this sense of torment with him. And I think it's just done really well. Oh, yeah. Like I said, that actor sells it. Yeah. And especially because they can't realize these things on screen, especially on a TV budget at this point in time. So you have to look to the actors to believe it. Yeah. So even though you're seeing a guy in... What a sleeping bag, maybe wrapped in bubble wrap. <laughs> They're seeing the actual thing and you, you go along with them. I think you really see that in that scene right at the end where he takes off his glove and his hand is very visibly mutating. It's covered in green bubble wrap and he just looks disgusted at it. And if he wasn't selling it like that, I think that would be purely comical. But the fact that he looks so disgusted. It should be funny, yes. but he's invested in it, so you are too. What's so brilliant about this premise is that it is horrific just in concept. Even without it being executed, just a thought exercise, it's terrifying. And also, it's something that we're familiar with, the idea of parasitism. It's something in nature. It's very relatable. Mm -hmm. The thing that's not so familiar, but it sells it well, is the idea that it can absorb the knowledge while it's yeah. also transforming its prey. Well, I mean, that is an important part that had to be included because in order for there to be a drama 
we need to understand their motivations, who they are. And that was one of the ways for there would be a communication and to add some more depth to it. At the time, there were a couple of scientific theories floating around about memories and knowledge being nothing more than effectively chemical chains. So that theoretically, based on what they thought at the time, you might actually be able to obtain knowledge by eating something. <laughs> I think that was proven false, but yeah, that yeah. was floating around. That did not get me through college. <laughs> All that cannibalism for nothing, Riley. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about the cliffhanger. Noah looking at his disgusting hand. He's already killed Libri. And so let's talk about part three. We get that voice of the Earth High Minister being heard through the entire space station uh... as Noah holds up his mutating hand. And Julie, I feel like you have things to say here. <laughs> Not that much other than just Earth High Minister was obnoxious and it was so over the top and like not even a motivational speech. I don't know. It's probably propaganda sop. So when we talked about Nazis earlier, I'm like, yeah, that kind of fits. I mean, it's necessary to add to the gravitas of the situation to increase the tension involved for the stakes. But we also get Harry saying, well, I bet that did your female chauvinist's heart a power of good. Excuse me, Harry? Excuse me? I think there are so many times as we go through this, you're just going to say, and then we get Harry. And that's pretty much all you'll need to say about it. You touched on something there, Julie, talking about eugenics and Nazi imagery with propaganda and so on. The doctor talks about all races, all creeds, but the only people we ever see are white and very English. I realize Holmes's original intention was to have Vira as a black character and he got screwed over by Rodney Bennett deciding to cast a white woman. So it feels like it's very white and English and there's no diversity at all in what is meant to be the group that rebuilds the human race. All we have on it is the mm -hmm. doctor saying that there's diversity there. And he hasn't looked at all of them. So you right. get the feeling that he may be just in his moment of being so proud of the human race that he's not really looking. Yeah. I don't think it was intentional, but that one casting change just kind of makes you go, huh, uh -huh. weird. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the talk about eugenics might be very, very different if it had been a black actress cast in that role. I agree. Mm -hmm. Also doesn't help that most of them were men. You had Vira and then the rest were men. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also had a question. Noah starts to get on the intercom and he's talking about taking over Earth, all this other nonsense. Why didn't they at that time go to main control and like confront Noah as opposed to just listening to him and being like, oh no. They do. That's where the doctor... It takes them a while to actually do that. The doctor and Vira are like, we're going to go. And Sarah says, I want to come with you. And she's told to stay and help Harry. And then they encounter Noah in the corridor. And he's all messed up. <laughs> I think that does happen pretty quickly. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Just not quickly enough for me. <laughs> anyway, we also get another Harry moment of come along, Nurse Smith. But okay, continue. <laughs> I think what Julie is hitting on here is that it's so very clear there's something wrong with Noah after he gets back from being slimed that it takes everyone a whole lot for them to say, you know, maybe we should check up on him. Yeah. It seems so very clear right from the start that there's something seriously wrong with him and they give him a whole lot of slack. I think it's because their society is so regimented 
and so yeah. put into these little boxes yeah. so they can't possibly imagine it. The doctor gets it right away, but it takes them a little more pushing. The doctor gets it and sends Libri in part two. Noah calls Libri's bluff and then shoots him. I think that's why I had that comment, because what happened to Libri in part two, I'm like, I would have confronted Noah before he even made his little speech about taking over Earth. Like The second that Libri was killed, I've been like, uh, okay, hold on a second. That's kind of where I thought they were taking too long to do the confrontation with Noah. Okay, I kind of see where you're coming from, Julie. I do love that corridor confrontation scene, though. Oh, it is wonderful. You can see the cut, I think, of where Mm. there would have been the scene of him begging Vira to kill him. The door crashes down very quickly and you see the gun hit the floor and it Mm -hmm. feels so abrupt. Speaking of direction, that is very, very awkward cut right there. Mm -hmm. It really makes you question, like, did I blink? Did I miss something? What happened? We did miss something. And we did. (laughs) So there you go. This is Dan O'Bannon must have seen this. This is Alien. This is Alien. This is Alien, what, 10 years too early? It's also Aliens. Yeah. There's other Mm -hmm. scenes from here. I mean, Sarah Jane going through the ducks with a little headset talking to them. That was an Alien as well, but also an Aliens. It's such an influence. And there's so many different parts that come through. It's a testament to how good this serial is because it obviously influenced a lot of people. Let's not forget that Ridley Scott, before he went to Hollywood, did work for the BBC and was originally down to design the Daleks before it was reassigned to Ray Cusick. Hmm. There is a strong possibility that he had seen this. Right. Four years later, Alien. Yeah. All right. The whole like electricity, lightning thingy, and then like a lot of the beeps and boops and stuff got a little obnoxious with the gun blast. I got a slightly concerned rumble, not as bad as during the Silorians, <laughs> but just a little bit there. But I do like that. That's, you know, we discover that electricity does do something. Yeah. And that's discovered by our autopsy of the Wirren. And then it leads us into, I find the most interesting and bizarre element of the entire serial is the doctor kind of patching in with his mind. Yeah. Uh-huh. I feel like that is, out of all the plot elements, I feel like that is the weakest. Yeah. It's a bit odd. I kind of like it. It feels very Quatermass in the pit, tuning mm-hmm. into the race memory, combined with like a mind meld from Star Trek or something. Right. But yeah, it definitely feels like something I've seen before. Maybe the Neil Patrick Harris character <laughs> from a... Uh... Starship Troopers. It's a phrase. Starship Troopers. <laughs> yeah, that that came to mind a lot with this one as well with the bugs. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel that him plugging himself in shows that he is really willing to take some pretty mm-hmm. extreme risks as this doctor. I don't see Pertwee doing that. Also, we're still getting to know the doctor. This is only his second serial. Yeah. He's still fresh. Still got a lot to learn about him. I do love how it takes us back to that opening sequence of part one, seeing yeah. what's happening through the Wirren's eyes. I believe we have the change in the serial from where we go bright lights to everything having shadow because the power gets cut. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Convenient. Which, of course, made me think of, they cut the power? How can they cut the power, man? They're animals. (laughs) (laughs) Part four? So it's at this point where I totally thought that this was going to be a six-parter and was pleasantly surprised that it was going to be a four-parter and was super stoked. We're now at a point where we only ever have one six-parter a season. I also liked that the recaps are appropriately lengthed. Yeah, we have far fewer running time issues. Yes. 
speaking of the recap, we ended part three with seeing the final transformation of Noah into a Wirren. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that effect wasn't good. It probably looked okay on a CRT television. Yeah. Not so good in... The music was excellent, though. Mm-hmm. Yes. The music's excellent throughout the serial. Part four. Noah is still trying to kind of save Vira. He tells her to leave the Ark and leave everyone else behind. And we also get the Wirren backstory. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's like so many other backstories. It's humans being humans, destroyed something. The other things then blame them and want to destroy them because retribution or revenge or something. Even though it wasn't these humans, it was a different group of humans who went off with a different survival plan. So it's kind of, you know, a bit of a dick move to take (laughs) revenge on this lot. Mm -hmm. Who were sleeping while all this was happening. But, you know, what can you do? Slime people, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. In the fourth episode, we get this kind of wonderful back and forth conversation between two separate communication installations of the Doctor and Noah, having this kind of negotiation, this kind of debate going on that I found really fascinating. You leave us all the humans and we'll let you guys leave. Kind of going back and forth. I really enjoyed that. Counter-offer. Yeah. and, And also the strategizing involved where they're going to move the electricity so they can block the cryogenic area. It was very strategic. Yeah. I do want to give Sarah a shout out because she does get sidelined a lot through this, but it is Sarah who thinks that the transport ship must have its own power source. No one else is thinking about that. So she's the one who buys them some time with the plan. And she's the one that goes through the duct. She is put through the absolute ringer, this entire serial. She is just beaten up both physically and verbally by the doctor while in while in the duct. The unfortunate thing I find about the duct thing is that really the only reason why she does it is because she's the smallest one. Yeah. That's what I don't like about it. I love the fact that she does it, but I wish it wasn't just a, oh, well, you're the only one who will fit, so I guess it's you. It's not her fault that duct designers in the future have never seen Die Hard. (laughs) (laughs) She did what she had to do. It's not her fault that Elizabeth Sladen was partially cast because she was the kind of figure that Pertwee approved of. Oh, I'll never forget that. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's really the only time that Sarah Jane gets to shine is when she first figures out about the transport ship and then at the very end of her climbing through the ducks because... And I say very end because she's starting to whine a lot. And I'm like, Sarah Jane, please don't, please don't. And then it's the doctor who has to egg her on to get her to stop freaking out. I like it from a doctor companion relationship sort of thing, but I don't like it so much from a female characterization perspective. He really is kind of hitting the whole negging thing from like the pickup artist or something (laughs) in the the duck. You took the words right out of my mouth, Riley. He negs her. I understand it. I... It doesn't quite sit right. It's my least favorite part of the the serial, without a doubt. I did like that he basically apologized for it directly afterwards. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to leave anything lingering there. Like, hey, I did this to make sure you got through. Seems like Sarah Jane, after she gets through, already realizes that it was just Mm -hmm. just that. He didn't even have to, like, explain himself. That's good, I guess. We've already mentioned how this is taking place in multiple parts. So we've got basically the cryogenic chamber fortified, and then we've got the transport ship fortified. Vira and Rogan, who we haven't talked about yet. I love Rogan. Mm -hmm. He doesn't feel like he should be among these guys. He feels like he's a bit regressive, as they put it, in the way he speaks. (laughs) I fucking love Rogan. (laughs) But they give the Wirren trying to climb into the transport ship a blast of the engines, which, you know, fried Wirren. 
tasty. Also an alien. Yes. Yes. There you go. (laughs) That does lead to the initial spacewalk, which from an effects perspective, I know we want to talk about. I don't think it was that bad compared to some of the other things I saw. I don't believe that was the worst. I'll be honest, I barely even gave it a thought. Yeah, I didn't either. Of everything that was a special effect, it was probably my least favorite. And the rest of us didn't even notice. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know... (laughs) We were talking about how good the atmosphere was in bright light, and I know it's not as difficult to do it in low lighting, but I think the shooting in low lighting looked great, especially in the in the hallway. Gave a really creepy kind of darkened hotel hallway kind of feel. It just added more, and it was wonderful. Absolutely. Let's talk about how this concludes. They're going to set the controls for the transport ship to auto take off, and then they're going to evacuate. The idea is the Wirren will climb in and be sent off into space. The Doctor's going to sacrifice himself until Rogan, being the badass that he is, <laughs> knocks the Doctor out, stows him away somewhere, and sacrifices himself instead. Awesome. Yep. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is what I like to see, Rogan. Before that, during their negotiation, the Doctor suggested to Noah, take the Wirren away. We, at the end, are not certain of whether they're on the transport ship as a means of attacking them or Noah's doing what the doctor suggested and we learn that very soon he's doing more than that because yeah. we know mm-hmm. the Wirren can survive and fly in space on their own they don't need the transport ship the only reason Noah takes them in is because there's that last bit of his humanity and he is going to blow them up I think that's really cool I love that and you know what I love about that scene as well when the ship blows up there's no sound right right <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh, they actually accurately represented no sound in space. Is that because in space no one can hear you scream? (laughs) Uh, Now they got to get down to Earth once Vira revives everyone. Time for the TARDIS crew to peace out, beam down to Earth and check it out. We forgot to talk about Jelly Babies because Jelly Babies happened. Is it two? There's two. There's two. There's two. Harry gets new shoes. Harry does get new (laughs) shoes, which is very important because they're about to go down to Earth where there's nothing. I'm a little confused about that whole thing because the doctor says that the thing is faulty and then he goes and takes all three of them down to earth in the faulty thing. That's explained a little bit next story. Okay. Let's keep in mind that we actually have a proper ending to a story. And then Mm -hmm. we are immediately just very well segued into the next one starting. It's lovely. Yes. We haven't had that in a long time. Very long time. Did that even happen during the Pertwee era at all? I guess we technically had it from Planet of the Spiders into Robot. Which... I'm not sure if I count that. No. Don't count that. I think maybe the last time was probably the Dominators into the Mind Rubber. Mm. So it has been quite a while. I'm definitely loving that. Let's rate this. We will start with Don this time around. I really enjoyed this serial. The script and the way it works, especially considering what Andy was saying, how much trouble they had getting this just written down. I'm amazed at how well it works. Even if you do interpret our space arc people as being the bad guys in that they're kind of Nazi-like and eugenic, it just gives an interesting flavor of maybe the doctor is helping the wrong people. But overall... If you ignore that and just go, okay, well, that was just questionable casting. It's a fantastic story. There's great tension. The music is good. The only thing that is a letdown is the monster creature design for the Weirin. 
And when we're reviewing these, I try to ignore that stuff because I realize the BBC had basically a budget of like a dollar fifty to get this <laughs> stuff done. So I try to ignore that. And because of just how much I've thought about this serial since I finished watching it, I'm giving it eight and a half out of ten evil bubble wraps. Oh wow. All right, Julie. Some of the pros. It's a great concept. The atmosphere is wonderful. The music is so, so very good. After the initial, uh-oh, there might be a lot of synth, but okay, no, there's not. <laughs> Sets are great. Direction's good. Things I really didn't like. Sarah Jane being sidelined. She's made a damsel in distress and she screams a bunch. Harry, while he's nice to look at, comes across as fairly misogynistic. Despite his niceness, it's a weird combo. The Vern aren't really that great looking. So I'm going to give it seven slimy sleeping bag slugs out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Riley, you're up next. I'm sure it is pretty clear that I absolutely love this serial. This is a great sci-fi premise that has been borrowed tremendously <laughs> from. It has perfect pace. The serial sets a mood so well and it does it in such a short amount of time. Yes, the effects are janky, but the sets look great. I also wish that Sarah was more involved in the first two episodes. Baker is just crushing it already. The music is superb. I mean, this is so strong. Premise, pace, plot structure, mood, music, direction. Great performance by Baker. Okay, folks, here it comes. That's right. It is happening. Nope. I give this 10 old girls out of 10. Whoa. Wow. What? <sighs> Riley, that's your first 10, I think. I truly feel this way about it. I thought, like, if I'm not going to give this a 10, I mean, I don't know what the future holds, but if I don't give this a 10, I, I, what would I give a 10? That's our first 10 since Don gave one for the three doctors. So that's over two seasons at this point. Am I the only holdout? It takes a lot to impress me, guys. <laughs> Apparently so. So that brings it to me. This feels different. It's a different tone. This is the first of the Philip Hinchcliffe era. Robot was still the last piece of Barry Letts. It's a statement of intent. Don mentioned, while there were some difficulties in the writing, Holmes jumped in, he pulled through, he gave us something with a lot of tension, with a great concept. I think Rodney Bennett did a great job in directing it, so that you have the combination of great writing with great direction. I actually like the characters, although I do wish that Robert Holmes's wishes on the casting of Vira had been respected, so it didn't feel quite so uh, eugenics-y. Is that even a word? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> I think that that was not necessarily intentional. Overall, I think this is a very, very strong start to a new era. While I can't bring myself to give it a 10, I think the sidelining of Sarah brings it down just a little bit for me. This is going to get nine and a half Whoa. security robots zapping things out of 10, <laughs> which gives us a story average of 8.75, which is our highest in quite a long time. I think the last time we had one higher was the demons. Wow. Before we wrap up, there's one last question I have to ask. <laughs> Julie, is he the doctor yet? Yes, he's the doctor. Oh. Woo. Only two stories. That's not too bad. Only two stories. And with that, we have all four of us saying that he's the Doctor. We've had an absolutely storming story. We're at the end. We will be back next time around as we stay in the same time zone, but we're heading down to Earth where we will find out about the Sontaran experiment. But in the meantime, thank you so very much for listening and have a good one. 
You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippeck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Bad Buggies Go Boom Boom, was recorded on Friday the 19th of August 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at atwatchers4d, and you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, don't do anything rash with those regressives like, you know, kill them. They may well save the day.